0: Welcome to the Bridgeway Church Podcast. My name is David Bowden, and every week I sit down with one or several members of our church staff and host a conversation about how Bridgeway is seeking to fulfill its mission as the Church of Jesus Christ here in our city. If you are a member of Bridgeway, we hope this helps you more deeply engage with what God is doing in our midst, and if you aren't a part of Bridgeway, we hope you feel welcome and that our discussions may lead to more Christ-glorifying ministry in your own context. Let's jump in. Well, welcome everyone to the Bridgeway Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We are continuing our new series in how to read the Bible. Uh, Last week, we looked at the genre of narrative uh, stories in the Bible and how do we read them, everything from the Pentateuch to the history books to Job to the Gospels. We kind of blazed through it all and talked about some pitfalls and some suggestions and some resources, some things to be aware of. If you missed that episode, definitely go back and listen to it. I I found it really helpful. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite subject when it comes to genres in the Bible, and it's biblical law code. Uh, All those sections of the Bible, be it in Leviticus or Deuteronomy, that uh, you tend to just, your eyes glaze over maybe, or you don't know how to read it, you want to engage with it, and maybe you just are having trouble doing so. Uh, We're going to try to have a conversation today about um, the biblical law code, uh, why did it exist? What is it? Where do we find it? Uh, how is it positioned in, in the story of the Bible in Israel's history? And then what does it mean when Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law? Um, are laws still binding on Christians today? And then finally, how do we as Christians under the new covenant of Christ go back and read the law codes that were written for us, as we talked about last time that Romans 15 says, how do we read those fruitfully and in a way that would be beneficial to our walk with Christ? So a lot of stuff to talk about today, Sam. Surely you don't expect me to answer all those
1: questions.
0: (laughs) I'll pitch in. I'll pitch in. Oh, my. I'll do my best. Um, uh, But anyway, so let's talk. Uh, When we we say the word law, law code, the genre of law, what are we referring to in the Bible? Well, we're
1: not referring to legalism. Okay. Because immediately people think law, something I have to do to win God's favor. Okay, that's helpful. uh, Or to attain entrance into the kingdom or to be saved. So we're not talking about legalism. Or a pathway to salvation. Um, we're talking about the revelation of God's will for how his people should live in a particular time for a particular purpose. And maybe the most important thing, um, you know, last time we talked about maybe the most important thing about reading historical narrative is the difference between prescription and description. Right. I think the most important thing to remember about law is that it's always tied to covenant. Okay. Always. Yep. So, for example, um, when people want to jump back into Leviticus and uh, insist that we can't wear garments of mixed fabric, oh right, or we can't, or we have to have particular rules governing uh, which pots and pans to use, or um, things of that sort, we have to stop and say, No, wait, just a minute. This was; these were rules and guidelines given to the people of Israel who were under the terms of the covenant that God instituted through Moses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, when we come to the new covenant, remember, people, Testament means covenant. When we come to the new covenant, um, we are under what is Paul calls in 1 Corinthians nine the law of Christ. Right. And there are different uh, precepts different prohibitions, different uh, commandments and so on that we write, read in the New Testament um, this is I think this is probably one of the primary purposes of the book of Hebrews mm. is Hebrews is saying look you first century Jews who are still trying to live under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant and he's talking to people who profess Christ he said don't you realize when Jesus came, He brought us a better covenant. Right. The old covenant is is obsolete. Mm -hmm. God did not intend for it to be a permanent abiding guideline for what is right and wrong. It served its purpose. And we are now under the terms of a better covenant with a better Savior, with a better sacrifice. And, you know, the word better is probably the most important word in (laughs) Hebrews. Yeah. That's what you titled whenever you did a Hebrew sermon series. Jesus is better. Yeah. Absolutely. So. We have to remember that law is tied to covenant. Um, I mean let's let's think for just a moment um about how law changes depend as history and God's progressive revelation yep. moves through scripture. Okay. Um is everything that God commanded to Adam and Eve in the garden applicable to Noah? Mm. No. Right. Uh, Is everything that uh, Noah lived under prior to the flood applicable to people who lived after the flood? Well, Mm -hmm. no, because he gave us animals to eat, meat, not just vegetables. Uh, So we have to ask the question, where in the Bible's narrative flow are these particular laws and commandments found? Um, So... That, I think, is perhaps the most crucial thing. Now, yeah.
0: I want to I want to pause sure. right there because you said something I think that's really helpful that I want to just draw out uh, and just pause and let's say, like, let's name this because l- let's take food, for example. And you talked about how the laws of God uh, change throughout his relationship with humankind throughout history. So in the Garden of Eden, right, I give you every seed-bearing plant for food, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but then after the flood... Right, we he says, I give you what is is it animals is, is it just like everything that is on the ground. I think meat, like meat, yeah. <laughs> uh, so now you can you can eat this, but then in Leviticus he narrows the field, yeah, and you can only eat these types of animals, right? But then in the New Testament in Acts we read, no, don't call anything I've made unclean. Arise, kill and eat. Now opening up the field of meat again for yeah. us. So even food laws <laughs> change throughout the Bible, and I think even just like naming that and and seeing mm. that it's a reality. I think highlights the the, the, the question, the tension the, uh, that we're trying to answer, but also shows us that these law codes that are written down aren't rigid, stuck-in-time things that are applicable to all time because they right, can't be. Right, Yeah.
1: Now, um, some scholars have made a distinction among the laws. You hear them talking about moral, civil, and ceremonial. Right. Now, the Bible nowhere makes those draws those categories, but they do point to distinctions among laws. Mm. So, for example, there is a difference between um, um, how, for example, you have the law in in Leviticus about um, stoning an incorrigible juvenile delinquent. Mm. Um, And you have uh, dictates about uh, capital punishment. You know, there were, I think, upwards of 20 offenses or sins that you could commit that were that might warrant capital punishment. Right. Um, that's different, for example, from those places where, like you just mentioned, about the, the various dietary codes about mm-hmm. what they could or could not eat. So you see a difference between ceremonial, what how, how, the laws that governed the offering up of sacrifices on the day of atonement mm-hmm. and so on, um, and as over against the civil dictates that governed Israel's political. Uh, life, right. um, as over against the more supposedly the moral law, which is uh, thou shalt not kill, mm-hmm. thou, you know, honor your father and mother, thou shalt not commit adultery. So there are differences among the laws. You can categorize them, but what we have to avoid, I think, is the idea that people say, well, the civil and the ceremonial laws have been totally fulfilled and abrogated, but the moral law of God continues. Right. That's that's a dangerous thing to do. Yeah, I think so too. Because um, there are there are numerous moral realities that are expressed, for example, in the in the ceremonial uh, yep. uh, dictates in the book of Leviticus. Yeah, and, and theological ones too that are that are very helpful. to, exactly. to Think about. Yeah. Um, so we need to be careful in, in that regard. Um, law, you know, the the New T- Old Testament scholars recognize two types of law. Uh, There's one they call casuistic or case law. So, for example, you're reading in Exodus in particular, if such and such happens, then such and such Mm -hmm. should occur. Um, Those are very difficult. Those are not designed to give us uh, rules to govern us today. Now, certainly, we could ask the question, why is it the case that if A happens, B then follows. Mm-hmm. And we can say, well, maybe there's a principle in there about the character of God or the nature of man that we can learn from it without necessarily saying we are bound to that particular scenario. Right. And there then there are what are called apodictic laws. These are absolute laws um, that that basically issue orders about right and wrong that very rarely admit of any exception. So, Mm -hmm. honor your father and your mother. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Um, uh, Those are are the kinds where we say, well, we might still be bound to obey those, but we have to, again, read those through the prism or the lens of the coming of Christ and the institution of the new covenant. So... um, let me – let's just take one example because uh, this is the biggest – this is probably the most – one of the most controversial oh, okay. ones. The Sabbath. Oh, yeah, definitely. The law of the Sabbath was very particular, very specific in the Old Testament. It's even found, um, you know, in, in, in the uh, in the Ten Commandments. It's mm-hmm. one of the ten. Is it what, the fourth? Is that right? I think so, yeah. It's one of the first four. <laughs> yeah, it was the fourth. Um, and people say, is it significant – that it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that isn't repeated in the New Testament. Hmm. And that's true. The other nine are explicitly repeated in some form or other. In terms of being commanded. Yes, being commanded. Um, But the fourth isn't. So are we still bound to the law of the Sabbath, at least as Israel observed it? Um, Well, there are a number of things that have changed. You know, the Sabbath has moved from Saturday to Sunday for us, although the Seventh-day Adventists would want to take issue with that. They say, you can't do that. Right. but we have to ask the question, what was the purpose of yes. the Sabbath ordinance? What was it designed to do? Granted, at one level, it was physiological. You need to rest. Your body shouldn't be working seven days in a row without a break. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there is this cycle of labor and rest that God was, uh, was also an object lesson. This is how God did it when he created right. the world. He, Labored in six days, rested on the seventh. Not because he was pooped, but you know he was giving us an example to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the question is, but what? What was there a higher intent in the Sabbath law? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is very clear. It is. Um, uh, I think, in fact, in Colossians two, Paul tells us it was a shadow, and the substance is Christ. Right. So. When people say to me, "Sam, do you observe the Sabbath?" and I say, "24 hours a day, <laughs> 7 <laughs> days a week. I'm resting in yep. Jesus." Hebrews <laughs> Hebrews 3 and 4. Exactly. Like, yeah. Jesus, uh, what the Sabbath was primarily designed to teach us. Look, um, God is going to provide ultimate absolute rest from all of your attempts to work your way into his presence. Yep. And that that typologic, anti-typological anti-typical fulfillment is Jesus. Yes. He is my Sabbath rest. Yeah. I am I I celebrate the Sabbath every waking and even every sleeping moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people think, "Oh, that's just a fancy way of trying to get around, to, you know, saying you can j- mow your lawn on Sunday afternoon." <laughs> I said, "No. It, it's 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 recognizing that that was a law mm-hmm. that had a very distinct purpose in God's progressive revelation that was pointing to Christ yes. is fulfilled in him. Right. Um, so, yeah, uh, a variety of – and again, let me just say this as well while I'm on my hobby horse here. Have it. Uh, when people read the Old Testament and they, uh, they read, thou shalt, thou shalt not, do this, don't do that. Um, and they think, my goodness, that must have been a burdensome life for the people of Israel. Mm. Well, if they if they approached it thinking that I've got to do it perfectly in order to win acceptance with God, yeah, right. horribly burdensome. Yeah, but read Psalm one hundred nineteen. Mm-hmm. I mean, that will that will shatter your misconceptions about yeah, the law of God. Yeah, oh, the law is a delight to my soul. It's like honey to my taste. It's sweet. It's more precious than gold. It is the you know the the joy of my life. I revel in it. I rejoice in it. Teach me your law. I mean, just over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So we need to get away from the idea when we because you opened this this session, this program by you know talking about how the law feels like a, a heavy burden, a weight, and Christians want to kind of recoil from it. Uh, when we read it in terms of its divine intent, we need to realize that, um, as Paul says in Galatians three, one of its purposes was to show us, folks, you can't do it, right? You can't you can't, God wanted to hammer this home over and over and over again. Um, yeah, these are helpful guidelines. This is to to, to to govern your life under that particular covenant. But if you think that you can fulfill this on your own, uh, you're mistaken. That's why Jesus came. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. Yeah. And I want to lean into more of how Jesus
0: fulfills the law um, and what that means. Uh, but before we do that, I want to kind of rewind a bit and go uh, go back to the old testament and and kind of blend narrative and law because they bump up against each other especially in the torah Mm -hmm. and they they go right up uh, up against each other and the the law was given to a people who are living god's story who are in the middle of god's narrative that he was doing so maybe help us understand um maybe why would god
1: give his people a law sure i think that's really oh, great question Um, I'm almost tempted to make a very sweeping, comprehensive statement here, but I always want to leave a little— Yeah, those are never dangerous. I want to leave a a loophole for myself. (laughs) Virtually everything that you read in uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, specifically Leviticus, people say, why in the world would God give all these minute little— seemingly silly regulations about what you could eat and couldn't mm. eat and how you could dress and what you couldn't and all all this stuff. And there was preeminently, and now there were other purposes. I'm going to give the preeminent. The preeminent purpose was God was saying, I am trying to teach you how to be different. Yes. Uh, you can almost, for example, if you read Leviticus 18, uh, all these – abominable practices of incest and rape and, and uh, homosexuality, you can find those were the common practices of the Canaanite pagan peoples who surrounded Israel. Mm-hmm. And um, even the, the issue of, of um, you know what kind of utensils can you use in order to eat, the purpose of it all ultimately was God saying, I'm trying to teach you what it means to be holy. Right. I'm trying to teach you what it means to be different from the pagan, immoral people that surround you. I want you to separate the uh, uh, fabrics. I want you to separate uh, the, the things that you would or will not eat, not because there's anything inherently wrong with eating shrimp, for right. example, um, or bacon for breakfast. Although it, you might take issue with squash. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, a, that's a universal <laughs> binding law. Thou shalt not eat squash. <clears throat> that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> um, God is sa- – these are object lessons. Right. And they really are one massive object lesson where God is saying, I'm teaching you how to distance yourself from others. I want you to be unique. I want you to understand you're my people set apart for me, and I'm going to give you all these minute little rules that continue to hammer that truth home. Mm -hmm. So yes, the law was given in a sense to govern their lives, uh, to make life livable at that time in human history. Yes, the laws were given in order to show uh, that you cannot save yourself by obedience and meticulous observance of moral rules, but more than anything else, I'm trying to teach you don't be like them. Mm. Be like me. And why
0: would why would God want to set apart for himself a holy people with a holy law code that
1: looks different from other nations? Well, um I well that's a good question. <laughs> um I I don't know how how would you answer that?
0: Oh man, I mean I I think about the missionary journey of God like from Adam and Eve onward that there's something probably about being a light, like a blessing to all nations yeah, yeah. From, from Genesis 12 with Abraham. Sure. It kind of ties into that somehow. Yeah.
1: He wanted Israel to be a light to the nations. Yeah. Mean, we have texts that say this. Yes. Um, and I think perhaps the intent of God beyond the borders of Israel was, hey, Canaanites, Amorites, Moabites, look at what I'm doing among my covenant people. Mm-hmm. I'm teaching them a lesson about me and what they're supposed to be. And guess what? You're invited into this. yeah. Um, so I think that certainly would be one way to answer your question.
0: And I guess another would be to show the holiness of Yahweh himself. Yes. Because, I mean, all throughout Leviticus, it's be holy as I am holy. Right. And so their holiness and set-apartness among the socio-economical, cultural people of their day, them being set apart was a incarnated version of Yahweh's set-apartness among his people. That they were showing that God was different, right? And, and so, um, I mean, that's at least two of the ways I I process that and why God would want to have a separated yeah. people. I'm sure there's others. Yeah.
1: So again, I th- I think again, if if we're trying to help people understand some of the most important principles for when they read the Old Testament, is they need to remember that these particular rules and prohibitions were given not. To declare that certain things in creation were necessarily or intrinsically bad. Yeah, that's helpful. Or evil. Yep. They were given as object lessons. Yes. And they they you know in our day you know we realize we're not bound by those rules. We think my goodness that must have been burdensome. No pork. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just <laughs> and he's got to realize what was what was God trying to communicate to them in mm-hmm. preparation for the coming of Christ which brings us now to the question of how did he fulfill all of those things? Yes. Um, and the primary way in which he did it, well, there are several ways, one of which was he embodied uh, a set apartness unto God um, that is a model for all of us. Yeah. He embodied and expressed what it is to be holy or entirely dedicated and uh, consecrated unto the unto the Lord mm-hmm. himself. Um so certainly he fulfilled it in the sense that he obeyed perfectly uh, the laws of God, although the Pharisees oftentimes would try to say, <laughs> you're violating it. But right. he, then he would point out, you're, you're obsessed with the external expression. I'm trying to point you to the internal motivation. Right. You know, so, yeah. So certainly he did by obeying it. Certainly he fulfilled it by suffering the penal consequences of disobedience to yes. the law. Uh, and then here's another thing we have to remember: when you see the word "law" in the New Testament, it's not simply referring to Leviticus. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Yep. It can, it can many times, it referring to the whole of the Old, old Testament, yes, from Genesis to Malachi. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, he fulfilled it in the sense that whatever it symbolized, he's now the substance. Yeah. Whatever yeah. it prophesied, he is now the fulfillment whatever it typified he's now the antitypical embodiment mm-hmm. so he can fulfill it in in ways that go beyond mere obedience to the particulars of what god said to do or not do right he fulfills it in the sense that its ultimate purpose was to point to god's provision of a full and final sacrifice for sin and it's jesus definitely
0: i think that's that's so helpful and, and I think when we think about the those categories you set up, um, ceremonial, civil, moral, and um, we, we talked about how the, the wrong way to think about that is probably not to say, um, well, he, he abolished these but not those, this this category but not that category. Uh, those are binding; these aren't. But but there is a way to think about some of those uh, in in saying how Christ fulfilled them. You know, and I think when we talked about last time. Uh, when we look through the prism of Christ, we get to see new things, new treasure in the Old Testament and even in the law that we didn't see before. And so uh, you know when it, it, it amazes me and I don't mean to be patronizing. it's just like it's it's amazing how how little um, many Christians have thought about this when we when we I talk to people about Leviticus, I'm like we we can't understand what Jesus did on the cross and all the language that the epistles use to describe, the atonement that Jesus made for us, without Leviticus, it right. sets up all those categories for us, and and shows us what they achieve and what they do and why they're there, and so we we can look back and understand. There's there, there's there's very little uh, explanation of what Jesus did on the cross and how it applies to us, and how like in in the in the epistles we would be. Lacking in a fuller, robust theology of atonement, if it weren't for the laws in Leviticus,
1: precisely. Yeah, and so yeah. I think
0: that's really that's really helpful. Um, another thing that might be cool for us to do is go through the food laws again, but actually talk about um, the the fuller meaning, why they existed uh, in each epoch, you know, if you will, and then how Jesus fulfilled them and why the law changed. Because I think it has a lot to do with. Uh, the chosen people of God and the unchosen people of God, yeah. right? So maybe we could walk through that throughout the, the Bible and help people see how that progresses. Yeah, I might let you do that.
1: <laughs> see, my mind immediately jumps to Acts 10.
0: Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah, that's where I would end it. Yeah, yeah. I'll, So I'm, right. I'm going to
1: start at the end. You can go through the – <laughs> because I think um, I think one of the purposes of the dietary restrictions was – again, an object lesson, Yes, a way in which God was teaching his people my message of salvation is ultimately for all the nations of the earth. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to train you in such a way that you're going to think that certain things can't be eaten. And then I'm I'm going to tell you, you need to understand you view other people outside the covenant like that. But now that Jesus has come, um, he saves them by faith in the same way that he saves us. Remember how Peter put that in Acts chapter 11? <laughs> right. So, um, now, is there a, you know, there's this question of, well, was part of the purpose for those dietary restrictions uh, God's desire to teach us, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, that all things are now clean if they are received with thanksgiving mm. and prayer? Or, for, or Romans chapter 14, yeah. where you can't judge one another based on because one's a vegetarian and the other eats meat. So I think all those factors uh, weigh in on that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we also have to take into consideration were the dietary regulations given because they really do help you physiologically? In other words, there are people right. today who say we need to still abide by those dietary restrictions because uh, science and medical research has shown. That some of the things that God prohibited them to eat were damaging to their bodies and we need to live by that. Well, certainly we need to we need to be wise in what we do and don't ingest. Right.
0: But uh, it's like I think that like, wouldn't it be in the inside the wisdom of God to if he was going to use dietary restrictions to create an object lesson about the chosen and unchosen people of God, would would he not also have been wise and kind to allow the people of Israel to eat things that may have been dietarily healthy (laughs) you know like i think so i i think if we made that the main point i think it would be very unhelpful but if it's a side point okay (laughs) i I can i can yeah allow that so did you
1: want to say more about that because i have something else i want to sure
0: i i'll just close the loop i guess on it because i think it's helpful i think it's a very helpful way to think about this because it takes one of the most obscure laws to us That are easy is is also easy to understand because we live among people in our neighborhoods probably that still abide by dietary restrictions either because they're Jewish or they're Muslim or they've put themselves under dietary restriction. I'm gluten free now. I'm you know. And so let me interrupt. Yeah, go ahead.
1: I want people to hear this. Are you free in Christ to observe the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament? Yes. Yes. Right. You are. Yeah. Are you obligated to observe those dietary restrictions? No. <laughs> no. So that's important to remember because there are people who, for whatever reason, have chosen to say, well, God must have had maybe some physiological motivation in his making these distinctions and differentiations of what they could eat and not eat. So maybe I need to do that for myself and it'll make me a healthier person. Wonderful. Mm. If you think that's the case, uh, go for it, right? But here's the tendency, and I don't, I don't know how many people I'm going to offend by saying this. I haven't met many people who have embraced that view who didn't then take the next step and say, "And you're not as holy as I am because you don't observe them as well." Right. That, folks, that is so dangerous. Now, I said many. I have met some. Yep. I've, we've got a cup a few in Bridgeway, mm-hmm. who, who. In, in some respects still observe some of the dietary guidelines, but they don't do it and look down their nose at me because I don't. Right. Or think that somehow they're more pleasing to God because they observe those and I don't. So um, certainly you, for example, uh, go back to the Sabbath. We come full circle here. Yep. Um, there are people who will not watch uh, a football game on a Sunday afternoon or they won't mow their grass on a Sunday afternoon or they won't go to a movie on Sunday night with their children. Uh, they are certainly free in Christ to do that. Or people
0: who want to observe a Saturday Sabbath.
1: Exactly. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, they're not necessarily legalistic because they do that. Right. Now, they could
0: be, but they aren't necessarily so. Following that law isn't legalism. Right. It's where you judge others for not following a binding law. And we're
1: not licentious because we choose not to follow that. Correct. So that's something I I want to bring clarity to that. No, I think
0: that's really good that you mentioned that. And so anyway, we're talking about these dietary laws, and— why are they there? They just seem random. They like, why did God make this distinction versus that distinction when it came to this animal or that animal? And we just have to remember that this is all couched in the fact that God chose Israel. It even says it in the Torah, where we find mm-hmm. this law. And uh, and so in the chosenness and unchosenness of these animals, we see a picture of Israel and the nations. Exactly. And then when we get, and then we know that this is the case because when we get to the New Testament, he says, "Yes, the nations were the unchosen food, but now I call all of them clean, and now you can eat all of them as a testament to the fact that I've accepted all nations. Therefore, you can accept all food." It's an object lesson. Preach it. yeah. and so anyway, it's just it's it's one of those very clear lines we can draw from A to B in scripture and and kind of prove the point that we're making here about the larger theological object lessons that the laws are trying to build, and that they're not exactly what you might assume they are of just like, man, there must be something scientific or physiological, or God's just arbitrarily assigning mean rules. You know, mm. It's like it's none of those things. God is making a case for the fact that he's ultimately going to save all nations, which is the gospel. Yeah. So anyway, I just think that's really helpful. So what was the other thing you wanted to jump yeah, to? Yeah, there
1: are two other things that I want to say here by way of application. Um, the first one is there is a, a, a movement uh, in the professing evangelical world that we call hypergrace. Oh, right, yeah. Um, which basically says we there's no such thing as law mm. all law has been abolished all law is legalism um and now since we have full and free forgiveness in christ we don't need to think about uh, uh, this this kind of approach to uh, uh, meticulous mm. obedience what mm. god has commanded now not all of them say that but mm. some of the more extremists do and we need to realize that um we have in the new testament paul says it i'm although i'm under the law of christ um You know, the commandments, uh, whoever keeps my commandments, says Jesus, is the one who loves me. Um, So we need to understand that simply because we're not under the Mosaic covenant and its laws does not mean we are lawless. Right. Uh, That's important to remember. Um, A second thing I want to bring up, and maybe you want to come back to that in in a moment. Yeah. Um, The second thing is Christians always ask so how do we learn from the Old Testament? Can we actually go back and derive truths and principles from it? And I think one of the things we have to do is we have to look at how the New Testament authors made use of Old Testament ethical principles yeah. to reinforce truths. So I wrote a couple of these texts down just to, to, to give people an example. Yeah, go for it. Um, take, for example, um, 1 Corinthians ten eleven. Um, You know, here Paul is talking about Israel's history in the wilderness and how they disobeyed and they fell into idolatry. And then he says, quote, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Hmm. So here's Paul is saying, um, here are people who were living during the time of the Mosaic Covenant and under the law of Moses, and their experience— Um, is designed to be an example to us. We need to be careful we don't do what they did. Or or here's another example. Um, Everybody knows 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16 and 17, where all Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, and so on. But what people don't realize is that in verse 15... Paul is talking about the Old Testament, which he says is wise, is able to make you wise unto salvation. Mm-hmm. Now, I do believe the word scripture extends to Paul's own writing and the rest of the New Testament, yeah. but it's not exclusively such. It includes the Old Testament as well. Very much so. And uh, I mean, what did they use whenever they went to the synagogues to preach Christ
0: and make people wise for salvation? The right. Old Testament.
1: <laughs> yeah, or take um, Ephesians 6, 2 and 3. Here's Paul says, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Mm. Well, that's right out of the Old Testament, Ten Commandments. And yet Paul uses that to reinforce the importance of obedience to parents. Um, Or 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, because... The Scripture says, he's referring to the Old Testament, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. Mm. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 25. So here's Paul drawing an an important ethical, moral guideline for New Testament uh, remuneration of those who serve in ministry based on what the Old Testament said. Right, about a farming practice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or um, Peter in 1 Peter 1, be holy in all your conduct because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So again, Peter's appeal to holiness is based on the same foundation in which the Old Testament laws were given, namely God's holiness. Um, one, one more final text. I'll just because there's so many of these. 1 Peter chapter one. Um, Peter says that the Old Testament prophets quote were serving not themselves but you mm. in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Spirit sent from heaven. Well, those Old Testament prophets were living under the Mosaic Covenant. They right. were bound by the law, the Levitical law. And yet uh, Peter is saying that the things that they wrote were in some sense intended for us. But th- how, in what sense, that's where we have to read backwards. We had to mm-hmm. read through the, the finality of the coming of Christ and how his life, death, and resurrection, as we said earlier, fulfilled the law. Um you know, some people have said, well, we're. I've had this question asked many times. Are we bound to obey anything in the Old Testament that isn't explicitly abolished in the New? Mm. No. Or others say we're only bound to what is explicitly commanded in the New and therefore nothing else in the Old. And I think both of those are. Misguided overgeneralizations. Yeah, it helps a little bit. Sure, certainly does. It, it's one of the factors you take into consideration when you're trying to assess. You know, is there some eternal moral principle that is embedded in some of the Levitical code that needs that I need to learn from? Um, so that and the answer to that probably is yes, there yeah. probably is. But that doesn't mean that I have to be careful on what kind of garments I wear. hmm
0: Yep. I think I think that's really helpful. Uh, one one thing that. As you're talking about all of this that I am confused about, that maybe is just too tight of a mystery to unravel. So if it is, okay, we'll both throw our hands up in the air. But um, we, we're talking about how we're not under the Mosaic Covenant anymore, um, and therefore it's it's the laws aren't binding. Uh, and yet we're looking at New Testament use of Old Testament law. And it's like, uh, you do this because it's written in this Old Testament law. And so it seems to be using the authority of the Old Testament to give commands that are in our inspired New Testament. And so my my question then, with all that as a background, is, is there a difference between saying that we are freed from the Mosaic Covenant uh, and that we're free from the law? Or are they always and only the same thing? Is that the wrong way to to distinguish them? No, they're
1: not always and only the same thing. Okay. Maybe help me with that. Yeah, that is a tough question. It's hard. I, I I would say this: we have to remember that the Mosaic Law is God's law. Mm-hmm. In other words, it came from God. Yep. So it's it is in some manner an expression of the character of our Creator. I see. So I mean,
0: it it because it was from God, it is innately authoritative because it came from Him. Regardless of
1: and important and, important. and helpful, yeah. yes. But in what sense okay. is it authoritative for us? Yeah, that's the challenge that all Christians and and if you if you all are listening to this and you're saying, my gosh, you guys are just going way over my head. Let me tell you something, folks. This is a question that has not been resolved by the best biblical scholars nope. in the world. Yep, uh, I'm constantly seeing new books uh, written about. How do we how do Christians in the New Covenant relate to the laws of the Old Covenant? And it is a massively complex issue. I, I will say this, I think one of the most helpful books was written by Tom Schreiner. Oh, it's yeah. um, Craigle Publishers has a series of books called 40 Questions. And he wrote 40 questions about Christians and the law. And Tom goes into this and provides some excellent principles that will help you uh, discern, what in the law of Moses can we derive? What can we learn from? How can we apply it to our lives? Um, I, I I want to be careful I don't overstate it. Mm. But I, would ha- I think I would say that I don't think that there is anything in the Mosaic law that I am un- in an unequivocal manner – obligated before God to obey hmm. but that doesn't mean that I can ignore it yeah there are underlying principles right um, there are um, there are there are truths that disclose the character of God the nature of who he is for example uh, you can see just in the in the reality of the uh, penal code of Moses hmm. God is just now does that mean that I have to stoned to death, an incorrigible juvenile delinquent? No. Mm-hmm. But I can learn from that something about how serious God takes disobedience right. and repentance. Yes. So this is the revelation of who God is, but it isn't necessarily the revelation of how he wants us to live in daily interaction under the terms of the new covenant. Mm-hmm. So I know that it's, it, that's, yeah. it's a tough distinction. It's a, it's a
0: super hard distinction. I'm, I'm curious if there's, if, can you state what you've just said conversely and it still be somewhat true when it comes to the underlying principles of the Old Testament and how they're fulfilled in Christ? Could we say that um, we are also, you know, when we live um, in, in, uh, like like Christ wants us to live and whenever we have what he has done on the cross and in his resurrection um, appropriated and credited to us? Are we also, in a sense, obeying and keeping the law, uh, because because we're obeying its moral imperatives? Christ obeyed its ceremonial imperative. I'm also wondering, like you're saying, I'm not bound by any any law. You're not required to keep it. But are there also some ways where, in Christ, we obey the law, and Christ has fulfilled the law for us? And since we're in Him, we've also fulfilled. We've also obeyed the law. Is there a way to talk
1: about that? Yeah. Um, believe it or not, I'm going to quote scripture. No way. Yeah. <laughs> Romans 8. Yes. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. For the law of the spirit of life. So there's law under the new covenant right there. Mm-hmm. Has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So one of the, there we see one of the purposes of the law is to teach us what you can't do in your own strength. Now look what God does for you. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Mm-hmm. So there is a sense in which the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled by us. We're not, we're not ignoring it. We're not rejecting it. We're not denying it. We're not, right. not undermining its authority. When we trust in Christ, we are in a very real sense fulfilling the law, because He is our He is our um, Gosh, what's a good way? <laughs>
0: it's our uh, yeah. He's our obeyer, our fulfiller. He's our obeyer, our fulfiller.
1: Yeah. He is the one who um, who does it perfectly, the exhaustively. Keeper. The covenant keeper yeah. and our trust and our confidence is in Him. And Paul saying. In that sense, you have fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law.
0: So is there a meditative way then, as we close, is there a meditative way that we can go into Old Testament law? And we've talked a little bit about reading it underlying principles, not stoning a a juvenile delinquent, but learning about how seriously God takes rebellion and repenting from that. And so we kind of talked about how can we apply moral, moral categories from those things. But are there also ways, since Christ is our covenant keeper, are there some ways that we can meditate on different commands in the law and see how Christ has kept them for us? Is that also a helpful way to read the law, or or not?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I'd have to give that some more thought. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, expand upon your question. Well, I'm just thinking like Romans
0: eight is talking about how Christ has. Fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for us. Mm-hmm. He's kept the law for us. Um, I think it's really clear to see some of these in the ceremonial system. Right. That I don't, I don't have to take a goat on the day of atonement or whenever I have a guilt offering or I need to make reparations. I don't have to do that anymore because Christ is my grain, guilt, sin, peace, all of the, all of the offerings. He is he, our Passover. He is our Passover lamb. He's he's all of them. Uh, and so he keeps so much of the law of Leviticus for me in his propitiatory death Mm -hmm. um he also um he fulfills if i wanted to go to a more a more base a more basic one i could go to the ten commandments and say honor your father and mother did i perfectly honor my father and mother either earthly or heavenly no i was a disobedient i was rebellious Mm -hmm. i did not hold them in high esteem or respect their authority at all times did jesus Yes. In John, we see that he only ever did what he saw his father doing. He perfectly obeyed the will of the father. Not my will, but yours be done. And so he kept that law for me. And so I'm just wondering, I just think it's an interesting way to interact with the law. When we sit under it, we reflect how we have failed. But how Jesus succeeded? I just think that's that's really. I mean, one that popped into my head is like the you know don't have a a roof without a parapet around it. You know, and it's like okay, what's what's that mean? What's like, well, you're looking out for the welfare of the guests that come over to your house, right? It's like, have I always perfectly done that? I don't know. I might be able to come up with a time where there was a safety hazard at a party I threw or something. Yeah,
1: if if it's during winter, you go out and scrape the the ice off the sidewalk. Yeah,
0: but it's like Jesus when people came over, washed the disciples' feet. like he was the consummate host. I just I think it's just fun to think about ways that. fulfills the law to, to help us reflect on our own misguided attempts and our own failures, but then how Christ is the perfect covenant keeper for us.
1: Yeah, and this brings me back to my uh, little, brief little tirade about hyper-grace. Oh, yeah. Because there are some who would say, David, what you just articulated is so crucially, foundationally important that whenever I find myself confronted with a commandment, instead of uh, of, of really digging down deep and trying to obey it, I need to say, wait, Jesus has obeyed this for me. Mm. Well, in a certain sense, that's true, Mm -hmm. but then some of them will use that as a way to justify ignoring the right. commandment and saying, I don't need to worry about or bother with the effort to, to guard my eyes. Right. or shall we, go, shall we go on sinning
0: so that right. grace may increase? Yeah, I don't
1: really need to think twice about whether I would go to a particular movie mm-hmm. because it might provoke lust. Why? Well, because Jesus has, um, ob- uh, you know, he all- He perfectly kept his eyes from lust ex- for absolutely, me. Absolutely, right? yeah. <laughs> so we have to guard ourselves. On the one hand, what you said, m- majestically true. That's yeah. the glory, the grace of God in the gospel- but on the other hand that doesn't mean that God doesn't care any longer about how we live and that That's right. whether we obey him or not.
0: That's right. I mean the law it causes us it should call us to repent and rejoice. Yeah. It should cause us to to change and to credit Christ for everything he's done for us. It has to do both. And I think I think the epistles uphold that perfectly. Sure. They, they 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 are so unbothered by that tension <laughs> between yeah. grace and law that we just have a hard time with and i think it's a testament to to the, to the new testament authors and how the holy spirit inspired them anyway this is i i love talking about old testament mm-hmm. law i think it's a lot of fun and um hopefully this has sparked a hunger in you if you're listening to this to to go and interact with the law meditate on it let it let it um let it rebuke you let it stand as your accuser to do two things to say you could not do this but christ did it for you and be holy as I am holy. Repent and be like me. I'm calling you out to be a distinct people so that my light might be known to the nations. And so let the the law do that to you. Let it help you run to Christ, but also um, run to be made into his image. And uh, both are going to do amazing things for um, your relationship with God, those around you, the world. Uh, That's how God is going to remake this world is by making us like him. Amen. Anyway, Sam, thanks for talking about this today. And uh, we'll jump into another genre next week. But in the meantime, go enjoy some Law Code. And we'll see you (laughs) next week. Thank you for listening to the Bridgeway Podcast, where you will find a new conversation every Thursday. For more information about Bridgeway Church, we invite you to visit bridgewaychurch.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BridgewayOKC, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash bridgewaychurchOKC. If you have any questions that you would like us to address on the podcast, feel free to email us at podcast at And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on the podcast app as it helps other people like you find our program. So on behalf of all the pastors and staff here at Bridgeway Church, I'm David Bowden saying thanks for listening and we will see you next week.